And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup, lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was, he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore this lamb fourfold, because he has did this thing, and because he has shown no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? You see, did you notice David, a man of great power? He was quickly outraged at the actions, attitudes, disobedience, faithlessness of another. Right? How dare this individual act this way? He had all of these things. Who is he to act this way toward another? How dare he? He ought die for what he did. I'll kill him myself. And he will return to that man fourfold for what he has done. How dare he? Right? And then Nathan springs on him. <laughs> David, it's you. We can tend to be like that. Right? We can see others' disobedient acts. Lack of love, lack of charity, lack of kindness, lack of obedience, lives falling apart, lack of receiving words of advice. We can see their own naivety, and we can see the perils that they're walking right along a mountain's edge on. And we can clearly see it, right? We always see somebody else's perils and problems, disobedience, faithlessness. while many times turning a blind eye to our own. You remember Christ speaks of this in the Gospels, and he speaks of it in uh, lumber terminology. Do you remember how he describes that behavior? We're kind of at a small group Bible study at the moment. Yeah, log in spec. 
And all of us at some point in time, or quite regularly, discover that is a reality within our own, what we'd maybe say, Pharisaism. You know, quick to see it in another, but not so easily seeing ourselves. And this is exactly what our text is speaking to this morning. You see, as a believer, as a Christian, reading your Old Testament text, I've said it once uh, a couple thousand times probably, you're not reading someone else's mail. You're reading the text of Holy Scripture, inerrant, inspired, for the church of Christ in both covenants. You, it's your story, your mail, your scripture. This is the way that the apostle speaks to you this morning from Hebrews 3. Thou art the man. Look at the text quickly with me as we turn there to Hebrews. If You're probably already there. I'm the only one left out. As we get there in chapter 3, this is exactly what is taking place. If I could read for you the text of 7 through 11, as has briefly been read already. Look at verse 7, where we pick up with our argument this morning in this Nathan to David kind of attitude as the apostle addresses us in light of a little ewe lamb kind of story. Verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. And you say, wait a second. Everybody there hearing this is saying exactly, exactly, don't, exactly. We're familiar with this passage. This is Psalm 95. He's talking about another man. He's talking about another people's. He's citing an Old Covenant text. Notice as I continue. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers, exactly, we're reading about them, this other man, these other people, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You see, the congregation here in hearing this text read aloud to them are very familiar with it. They could acknowledge it's customary for Psalm 95 to be read to the people of God. So they would offer at this moment nothing of uniqueness in hearing. Like, oh, I can tell what he's trying to say. Like David to Nathan or Nathan to David. I'm outraged. I can't believe this man behaved this way. I know. I can't believe our fathers in the wilderness showed such a rebellious spirit. Amen. Psalm 95. Amen to that. I agree. Don't have a spirit of rebellion, as the fathers did. Absolutely. Because again, on Friday night and Saturday morning in synagogue worship, it was customary to read Psalm 95. Yeah, so we've heard it read. We agree, amen. 
in Protestant denominations, uh, largely across the globe, in Protestant denominations, Psalm 95 is still read as that call to worship, gathering the people of God together. Psalm 95 is traditionally read for the congregation. Come, hear, heed, and obey. Celebrate and praise. Psalm 95 for the people of God. Here, however, the apostle is not just once again using it as that, hey, let's give a general call to worship. Yet it was customary for them to be able to acknowledge it that way. But do you see what he's doing? Thou art the man. It's you that I'm reading about. No, 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 just call us to worship. We're, we're, we're accustomed. Look at verse 12. He gets done with the customary reading there of Psalm 95, and he has his Nathan moment, verse 12, to the church at Redeemer also. Take care brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. See, this, now we've moved beyond the customary reading, a general call to worship. Neither is he at this moment giving you a history lesson on Israel. What happened in the day of rebellion? Let's look that up. What did they act like? Let's consider them. So he is not generally calling us to worship at this moment, as is customary, to where we can give a hearty agreement, and neither is he giving us a history lesson of what Israel did at one point in time. Neither is he simply pointing out Israel's attitude of sinfulness before God at a moment in time. He is turning this Psalm 95 to the church. And he is saying much like David, right? Because right now we would be David. (laughs) I can't believe they acted so faithlessly. God cared for them. God provided for them. God had blessed them. God had taken his presence with them. He had blessed them with little ones. He had cared for them, sustained them, and he was guiding them. He had redeemed them. I'm shocked at their response. Take care brothers that an unbelieving heart doesn't spring up in you do you see when we rehearse what God had done in Israel do you see those same themes in your own life he's redeemed me he's provided for me He's cared for me. He's been guiding me. He's blessed me. This text is the warning against a spirit of unbelief like that of Israel 
in the church. You see, as I mentioned before, we can have a sense of naivety. And I hope to encourage you this morning against that naivety of the perils that we face in a spirit of our own attitudes of unbelief. We can just turn that blind eye. And the apostle is trying to strengthen and encourage us this morning as reading Psalm 95, yet with quite a twist, isn't it? Beyond a call to worship, but application. Take care, brothers. You don't repeat this same history. So that we'll be woken up from our naivety. Oh, I'm fine. I'm doing all right. It doesn't really matter that I'm sitting stagnant. It does matter. What will be the product? An unbelieving heart. It doesn't matter. I'm just kind of floating along emotionally. When I'm down, I just withdraw from the Lord. When I feel like getting engaged, I'll come back. It's going to be all right in these huge gap stops in between. It's not going to be all right. And so he seeks this morning to strengthen each of us to take care. That we watch our own hearts. Lest they turn in unbelief. And again, you might hear that and think, I, you know, I, I don't think that that's possible. That, that an unbelief, that my heart could give way to unbelief. He is warning you, indeed, it is possible. So it is, I want to provide for each of us from this text two answers this morning, just two of them. Two answers to the question that I have created. That is, how do I battle against a spirit of unbelief? Two answers that I could provide for you from this text of how do I battle against a spirit of unbelief? That is, if you join with me in recognizing this text is to the church. We're not reading someone else's mail to each one of us. In Christ, how do I, Adam, Pastor, how do I battle a spirit of unbelief? Well, consider uh, answer number one from the text with me. As I said, we have two answers that I could see here in this text about battling a spirit of unbelief. The first answer is this, number one, I battle against the spirit of unbelief by holding fast to the gospel. That is, answer number one, I battle against a spirit of unbelief by holding fast to the gospel. Notice it in the text with me as he exhorts us. Beginning, look at verse 6, and we'll see it again in verse 14. I battle a spirit of unbelief by holding fast to the gospel. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we looked at that last week. And then he continues about the faithfulness of Christ to the house And he explains the house, that is us, the people of God. And we, the people of God, bought by the blood of Christ, are his house. So he is faithful to us. And he says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence 
and our boasting in our hope. Christ is faithful to the people of God. How do I battle, though, unbelief as belonging to the house? By holding fast to the confidence in the gospel. By holding fast. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope, which is Christ. Holding fast to the gospel is how I battle a spirit of unbelief. So you see, what then happens if I'm not holding fast? A spirit of unbelief. Look at verse 14. It kind of serves as kind of the uh, parentheses there, kind of couching in our whole text as he repeats himself in verse 14 about this critical component of how do I battle the forefather's spirit of unbelief. How do I battle it? Verse 14, he reminds us, after sharing a spirit of unbelief in the fathers, he encourages us with the same words in 14. For we share in Christ. He's faithful to the house as a son of God. We're hidden in him. He reminds us, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The original confidence is the inbreaking of the gospel, where he who is free is free indeed. And we sang, My debt is paid, it is paid in full. I don't know any more words in a row of that song unless it's posted. We all just confessed it and sang it. That's the point of the inbreaking of our original confidence. We know our debt has been paid. It has been paid in full. I think the next is by the precious blood, something along those lines. That's right. That's it. Chapter 2 already explained that to us. Therein lies our confidence, the blood of Christ. And He is faithful to us to come, to gather us, to pay our debt, to rise on our behalf, and to intercede for us every single day. That is my confidence. And I'm exhorted here, lest I want to find in my heart hurtful in besetting unbelief. I must hold fast to that. It smacks totally against the idea that you can pray in a moment and be on your way. Again, what is your testimony as a believer? When you're struggling right now with a spirit of unbelief, it's kind of scary, isn't it? Sometimes I see it, right? It's, you see things and you feel things and you, and it's a little bit shocking at times, some some of the concern you might have and, and, and almost a spirit of unbelief. Wherein, how, how do you find confidence 
How could I encourage you in finding confidence, battling against that spirit of unbelief? How would I encourage you? I would ask, as I do of my own heart, what is your testimony? Not, the answer is not, well, when I was eight years old, I'm asking right now, what is your testimony? I'm not too concerned, neither should you be, with when you were eight years old. Today, if you hear his voice, where is your confidence today? How do I battle a spirit of unbelief today? By holding fast, not when I was today. By holding fast my confidence in Christ. That my debt is paid, it is paid in full. Today. That will extinguish unbelief. This is exactly what the apostle is driving. Charles Spurgeon once said this of hope. Holding fast. Hope itself is like a star. It is not seen in the sunshine of prosperity, but only to be discovered in the night of adversity. That is the call to battling a spirit of unbelief. That in adversity, in spirits, attitudes, comments, actions of unbelief, I must hold fast to the truths of the gospel. If I could briefly state a couple that we have already covered in the last few weeks, where can my heart go? What are those concrete, objective works of Christ that were performed for me on my behalf? What were they? What have we already heard is the grounds of our confidence? Wherein does my hope lie? I thought of three of them. The gates of hell have been torn down. Therein lies my confidence. He covered that in chapter 2. He went in, became flesh, dwelt among us, destroyed our enemy, and delivered the captives. Well, when I was seven, I said, I don't care. Neither should you. When you are 27, I'm just saying that if that's your age, that idea. I'm not putting a new date out there to worry about. Today, if you hear his voice, do you celebrate that the gates of hell have been torn down? Your original confidence that he will do all that he promised he will do. I believe that today. That was the fire extinguisher on a spirit of unbelief. The gates of hell have been torn down. Confidence. Today. I considered another one as he described it in chapter 2 for us. I am no longer therefore enslaved to sin. I'm not. I'm not. By the power of the Spirit that has been given me through the gospel, I can and will overcome 
sin and temptation. I am not enslaved to this spirit. I'm not enslaved to this attitude. I'm not enslaved to, the, to, to these reactions on my part that I tend to overdo or do this or underdo or can't perform or overperform. I'm not enslaved to that. I'm not. By the power of the gospel, through the indwelling spirit, I have been set free and I will continue to experience my freedom. How? How is that true of me? By holding fast to the truths of the gospel. I am free indeed. This is the extinguisher upon a spirit of unbelief. A third one that I considered from chapter 2 that he explained to us that Christ now rules over the entire universe. That's hard to wrap our mind around because we have a hard time wrapping our mind around the size of the universe. And it seems that it can be an abstract, again, idea. And we always see that Scripture really doesn't speak in abstracts and these grandeur themes. Preachers tend to translate it that way. And that's not the way the text is speaking. It's speaking in concrete, tangible ways to the people of God. He actually rules as in everything is under his authority in the entire universe. So let's make it even less abstract. He actually rules and reigns with authority over the events that take place in your life on a daily level. He can't reign here and not reign here. So when we glory in the power of Christ who has been raised and rules over his kingdom now, Revelation 20, those who died have been raised to the first resurrection. Blessed are they. And that rule and authority continues here on the earth. Romans 1, when Christ was raised, Paul said, he was raised as a son of God. Guess how? in power. He reigns here, and that means he reigns right here. So I think that like things are falling apart, and this is not working, and everything, all the wheels are falling off the bus. Unbelief is going to want to creep in like darkness, covering it over. How do I extinguish it? How do I overcome? How do I battle it back? By holding fast to my confidence in the gospel today. So you mean all of this happening isn't outside of your authority? No, it's not. And you mean that you love me? Yes, I do. And you've demonstrated that? Yes, I have. I have come and been made like you, that I might then destroy your enemy and mine and deliver you unto myself. And I have told you, I'm coming back for you.
And if you die between now and then, which would be also my plan for you, I will then raise you up that very moment to where I have promised you in the book of Revelation, not a hair of your head will actually perish. You mean that's true? Yes. That is how you battle a spirit of unbelief. But if you don't go to the gospel as he's exhorting you, hold fast. If you don't hold fast, unbelief will overcome you. You will be a spiritual Eeyore. And his exhortation to you is to keep going. Because to become an Eeyore is to not make it. Like the fathers who died in the wilderness. So he says to the church, take care, brothers, that you hold fast. Eeyore is from Winnie the Pooh, for some of you who are unfamiliar. Everything's Eeyore for him. Down and out, downcast, poor old Eeyore. Consider the second comment about the, how it is that we fight a spirit of unbelief. How do I battle? Again, that I, can, I receive from the word of the Lord that I can turn a blind eye to my own sinfulness, my own perils of unbelief. I can. I can do it. And, and the church does it. That's why this text is here, to exhort us and wake us up. You'll see it quickly there, but not so quickly here. And I'm saying to you, don't look at it in the Old Testament text alone, but take care, brothers. So as we receive, yes, I can be naive about my own eorness, my own apathy. I can be naive about just how badly I am drifting. How then do I battle against that drifting? By one, remember, holding fast to the truths of the gospel. Number two, how can I battle against a spirit of unbelief? Number two, I battle against a spirit of unbelief by fighting faith-destroying sin in the power of the Spirit. Faith-destroying sin. Do you see that's not abstract, an idea of naughtiness. It is actual sins that are expressed here in this text that we must battle against to continue in perseverance. Notice in verse 7 through 9, here are the sins that we will see as we could kind of itemize them out a little bit just by way of this text's concerns for us in perseverance. Beginning with verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works. The rebellion, that is, if I could give you a brief word on the context before we just kind of begin dicing out some of these items about, indeed, faith-destroying sin that is present in this text, a general comment on the context of Psalm 95 is looking back to Exodus 17. So if you wanted to kind of cross-reference and look that up of what Psalm 95 is exhorting you and has uh, exhorted the people of God, continues to do so, you would be able to go back and look at the events of Exodus 17. The rebellion on the day of testing is a reference to the event at Rephidim, 
Again, recorded in Exodus 17. There in the text, the people of Israel were out of water. Do you remember that from Sunday school or at some point read through in the Bible in a year and you remember, ah, Israel was running out of water at Rephidim. Here it is, they're thirsty, they've been redeemed, they've been drawn out, they're following Moses' leadership and they ran out of water. They began to grumble against Moses, getting angry. They threatened at that point insurrection. They were going to stone him. Let's just get rid of this guy. He brought us out here. He's going to see that we die. He's going to see our little ones die. What, have we, what has he done? Let's just get rid of him. Let's turn around and let's go back. Moses, as he's recording this episode in Exodus 17, directly relates the people's grumbling. They're wanting to stone him threatening insurrection. They're grumbling about the water situation. Moses, as he records it, attaches their attitudes not to himself, but more so their attitudes toward God. Moses records it this way. On the day they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the attitude of the people of God and the faith-destroying sins that are present in this episode with Israel that we too must fight against. I have three of them. If you want to jot them down or I'll just uh, work our way through them. Of that which Moses and the people, grumbling against him, they were actually saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And from this episode, we are exhorted by the apostle in Hebrews, do not harden your hearts like they did in the episode of the rebellion. Three faith-destroying sins in this text that we must fight. Number one, ingratitude. Ingratitude. We're coming off of the Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully, again, we're a people... Marked by thanksgiving. Right? So, technically, we would still be thankful today. Ingratitude. Again, not at Moses. Moses says, but yeah, at me, but really kind of this direction. That's what's in the heart in gratitude at this circumstance, at this circumstance, at this circumstance. If this was fixed, it would be better. If that were this way, I would be... It's not these items as Moses draws our attention to the text. You're actually testing not circumstance, but you're testing the Lord. An ingrateful spirit is a declaration that the Lord is not among us. If he were, things would be the way they ought to be. Look at verse 16 through 18. This is what we see recorded about the spirit of ingratitude. Verse 16, for who were those who heard? This is the apostle speaking to us about their day of rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt? 
led by Moses. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Look at the text just briefly. Verse 16, they heard the word of the Lord. Yet notice, they still rebelled. They were led by Moses, but do you see what they did? They still sinned, verse 17, and acted in verse 18, disobedient. They were showing ingratitude towards God's deliverance from Egypt and the provision that he made for them in Moses as a leader. They were led by Moses, but they did not follow. They heard the word of the Lord, yet they did not believe. Ingratitude. If I can't get a cup of water, the Lord is not among us. And we might not act so hasty to say, if I can't get a glass of water, the Lord must not be among us. But you see the heart condition. We can just say it in a thousand different ways. In an ingratitude, ungrateful spirit. If this doesn't work out for me, I'm going to respond. And it is those who are being tested, like Israel, our fathers, turned and tested the Lord and said, you be tested out of an ungrateful heart for what he had done. Verse 9, second one, that is considered three faith-destroying sins that we see in our forefathers. That is, number one, ingratitude for his deliverance and his provisions. Thankfulness is to be the mark of the people of God. Number two, the second that we must fight against, as did our fathers, is arrogance. A spirit of arrogance will destroy our faith. Look in verse 9. As he describes the episode, quoting from Psalm 95, he says, Where your fathers put me to the test. And they saw my works for 40 years. Again, arrogance in the heart. That in life's challenges, we don't receive from the Lord. That he is testing us to prove our faith, to show us what he's at work in us doing. We'd rather turn the tables, put him to the test because of a spirit of arrogance. If you will do this, then I will return that. Arrogance will destroy a spirit of faith. The people of God are to be marked, according to chapter 2, by that example who is Christ, which is a spirit of humility. Number three, and our final one, our third faith-destroying sin that we see in this episode at Rephidim, that he exhorts us to battle against faith-destroying sins, ingratitude, arrogance. Finally, if you look at the text, faithlessness, a spirit of faithlessness. Certainly, what the Lord has done, if we proceed without a spirit of faith, our faith, current, will be destroyed. Look at verse 10 and 11. They saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Notice carefully, the role of faith in this text. If you look there at verse 9, 
Do you see? They saw my works. But then if you look down at the very end of verse 10, even though they saw the works, do you see what God describes of them? At the end of verse 10, they have not known my ways. They have seen with their eyes, but they have not known in their hearts. Intimacy of faith before the Lord. They have seen me, but they have not received me. They have heard and yet rebelled. Finally, if you look at that text, at the end of portion of a faithless spirit, he exhorts you this morning, the church. I'll read for you one more time, verse 16. For who were those? Look at the gift. They heard. And yet, apart from faith, in the hearing of the word, they rebelled. Here we are in this moment hearing the word of the Lord. It isn't for a lack of hearing only that they then rebelled for did they not hear and still rebel? It's not for a lack of leadership what Lord provides. Were they not led by Moses and yet didn't follow? Here we are together, people of God, hearing from the word of the Lord. How are we hearing? For it wasn't for a lack of hearing that they rebelled. Are we also appropriating what we're hearing by faith? It's not enough to come, sit, hear a good word, largely zone out, and think you're going to make it. It's you. Let us hear, not hearing only, but receiving by faith, obediently doing. All by grace. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that we would not approach your text of Holy Scripture as hearing about someone else or something else, but we would recognize we're hearing about ourselves. We're appropriating your holy text to our hearts, not someone else's in the room. Like, I hope they're hearing a good word today. But that we're hearing. That we too might be shaken from our naivety. The word laid bare before us. And that we would, by your grace, that you provide, appropriately lay it to our own hearts that we would follow you obediently with thankfulness, humility, obedience. We thank you for our Savior, Christ, in whose righteousness and blood we do plead the forgiveness of our sins. In his name, amen.